Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Memory Lane. I am your host, Noah Hiles, and joining us on the show today is a two-time Super Bowl champion, a three-time Super Bowl participant, and a guy who, you know, he's my competition now. He interviews athletes for a living now. It's Bryant McFadden, former Steeler. Bryant, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for clearing out time on your schedule. I mean, I, I work... A lot of hours in a week, but I follow you on social media, and you, you put a lot of hours in, too. So I was happy to to book you for this show. I know that you got a lot going on. Oh, man, appreciate you considering me to come on. I mean, you know, anything related to Pittsburgh is always a priority of mine. So uh, I got a lot of love for Pittsburgh in, in totality. So it's always an honor just being able to be affiliated with something Pittsburgh-related. That's good. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to talk Steelers with you. Obviously, a lot going on with them. But before before we get into the Steelers talk, I want to start with your early days of your of your football life. Um, in high school, uh, you were playing at MacArthur High School. Is that right? In Hollywood, yep. Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just kind of want to talk to you about what it's like to play high school football in the state of Florida. I, I went to school. I, I don't know if you ever heard of Mount Union. It's a division three school, yeah. um, but they had a lot of kids uh, who, you know, played all over the state of Florida and just how competitive that state is, especially for skill players. And you, your senior year, you were ranked as the top corner in the state, if not the nation, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be that high ranked of a player in that state playing in that against that competition has to be just very interesting. And uh, just having that target on your back. What's that like to go up against some of the best recruits in the nation each week? I was challenging. It was challenging, but if you're a competitor, you welcome that challenge. Uh, the thing that I like about football in South Florida, because the weather is always ideal for something outside related, you can play football year round. You know what I mean? It's not just about participating in football in the summer, then leading into the fall. We don't really have a winter. So you're always able to be outside compared to some other, you know, uh, uh, colder places like Pennsylvania, you know, other cold climate uh, states and things like that. And then also, too, that's just just because of how good the weather is. You have to be outside doing something, and football was a way for everybody to get out and do something together. And, you know, football, track, well, track was always important, um, you know, soccer, things like that. So me personally, when I, growing up in South Florida, it was, it was amazing about, it was so amazing to see so many talented players just in the same area. Like, I, I grew up, I lived in Hollywood, Florida, and I went to MacArthur, but just in my area alone, there were probably six other legit high schools I could have went to. You know what I mean? So some of the kids that I played little league football with, we all didn't go to the same high school. We be- we became enemies, to say the least, when they went to a different high school and I went to another high school. Uh, but the, just that area alone, South Florida, man, Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, Broward County, Dade County, uh, the who's of who have come from that area. And then for me to be considered um, the best player, not just in South Florida in my position, but the entire state and the country, you know, I had a bullseye on me. Anytime mm-hmm. I played against somebody in high school, they wanted to see if I was legit. They wanted to see if the rankings were warranted. You know what I mean? So I always had to go out and prove myself every Friday in camps, in actual games, because they were always wanted to see what McFadden was because I was one of the best players in the country, not just the state. So all the kids knew about me. All the coaches knew about me. So it was fun. It was fun. I, I, I think if you ever get an opportunity of watching high school football, Go check out high school football in South Florida. Yeah, and 
different. And that's what's especially cool to me is that it's the skill guy. I mean, there, there are big line recruits out there in Florida as well. And, I mean, quarterback, there's every position produces talent uh, in Florida. But, I mean, the skill guys in Florida, I mean, you could go down the list. And you mentioned all those counties of uh, just – you know, receiver, defensive back, a guy after guy. And for you to be the top, I mean, that bullseye that you mentioned, I'm sure that had to have been a challenge. Um, so you end up choosing Florida State. And you you were choosing, you know, this school during a period of time where there were multiple really good college football programs in your home state of Florida. What made you choose the Seminoles over the Hurricanes or the Gators? The collegiate atmosphere. It was a college town. Uh, the support for the state football was like the main attraction, the coaching, the, the way they developed their players and the coach that was going to coach me, Mickey Andrews coached the likes of Deion Sanders, Terrell Buckley, Clifton Abraham, Corey Sawyer, uh, Samari Rowe, the list can go on and on, Leroy Butler. So he was going to be the same guy coaching me. So that meant a lot. And then last, lastly was head coaching the stability. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't see Coach Bowden leaving Florida State while I, while I would be there. You know, I felt like he would just – the only way he left is if he just – if he retired drastically out of nowhere. Some of the other coaches in Miami was like, you know, neck and neck with Florida State, but I felt like at the time Bush Davis was the head coach, I felt like he probably would get a call to the NFL sooner than later and he probably would leave. Now, he came in my house in my living room and told me and my parents, no, he wouldn't leave. And after one year, he left, took the Cleveland Brown job. So yeah. those are the three, the three main reasons why I chose Florida State out of the other schools. You mentioned the uh, the amount of talent that was in the defensive back area of that program. I looked, you had five other guys go pro in the defensive backfield during your time at Florida State. Antonio Camardi, mm-hmm. Pat Watkins, yep. Jerome Carter, yep. Rufus Brown, and B.J. Ward. Mm-hmm. Am I missing anyone? Uh, I play the, I think that's about it. Oh no, no, you missing um, you missing a young Tony Carter. He was on that team, played with the Patriots and the Broncos. Uh, anybody else? I think I think you got it. I think you got it. I think. All right, yeah, I I did my research for this one. So, with with that set i mean and you throw yourself in there that's seven defensive backs and you were there for three years that's an entire defensive backfield going pro essentially yeah what is it like to practice i mean that had to be the most competitive position group practices every single day just pushing yeah. each other right oh no question it was, it was it was always a competition and um yeah I, I was actually there four years so uh you know being there four years and 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 playing with guys like that that all had you know, pro talent, everything was a competition, not just on the football field, in the weight room. You know what I mean? Who can bench the most? Who can squat the most? Who can jump the highest? You know, who's the fastest? Who's the quickest? Everything was a competition. So it just kind of translate, translated on the football field. And the guys that you talked about, defensive backs, heck, we had probably just as many guys that we were covering in practice that went pro as well. You know what I mean? So those were battles. I think the easiest part for us was the game. The hardest part was practice. Especially when we had scouts coming out to watch us practice. Oh my goodness, we had scouts coming out to watch us practice. It was like I knew I, I knew I was going to get whoever was lining up across from me best effort. So I had to get in game mode. You know, for us practicing, I mean, when we knew scouts were gonna be out there, we got dressed like it was a game. 
people are taping up their wrists they're tighter than usual taping up their ankles spat i mean you're going to war because you know it's like the actual game so when you practice good on good on saturdays you're probably gonna have an easier task because most of the guys you were playing against didn't have as many talented players as we had so it was it was fun it was fun we all had the same aspirations for which were to try to do everything in our power to get drafted and the majority of us did that was it ever frustrating knowing that i mean with that amount of depth you know and this applies to a handful of programs in the country maybe like an ohio state a clemson you know, in Alabama, and that's, you know, at Florida State, you were in that tier when you were there where it doesn't matter if you're an All-American. If you have a bad week of practice and a bad game, you could sit. Uh, did that ever bother you at all? Or, again, was that just something that you think fueled your success? It didn't bother me. It was part of pressure. But the only thing about pressure that bothers people is when you're not prepared. But if you're prepared, you can handle pressure, right, because you know exactly what's coming uh, coming in front of you you know how to handle it. if you do everything in your power if you study tape how you're supposed to you get your body in the best shape possible mentally and physically and you just go ahead and continue to perfect and, and work on your craft you know you're okay with pressure and i can tell you this much mickey andrews mickey andrews is an old-fashioned coach he came from uh the, the paul bear bryant era so he would cuss you out like a dog and then cuss you out to get back in there and get in a fight i remember one time i think it was a sophomore and i wasn't actually the full-time starter then but i was playing about 50 percent of the snaps and uh, I remember we were playing maybe Maryland or someone. I can't remember. But we were in Dope Campbell. And I was lining up on the side, close to our sideline. And I remember Coach Andrews called the defensive call, but you were in man-to-man. -man, and he started yelling to the offense, throw to number eight. Let's see what number eight has. Let's see what this all high school All-American has. So in my mind, I'm like, Coach, whose side are you on? Like, like what? You mean you want them to throw, throw, throw over to my side to see how I handle this pressure? He just said, throw it to eight, throw it to eight. They coming at you, eight. What are you gonna do? They coming at you, eight. So they came, uh, not that particular play, but they came maybe a few plays down the line. Caught a slant on me, maybe six, seven yard slant. I made the tackle. He cussed me out like a dog. I want you to get in there and get in the fight. Give me a corner that's gonna get in the fight. Snatched me right out the game because, like I said, I was closer to our sideline, so I'm hearing everything. He snatched me right out of the game. Gave me an earful. I said, Coach, it's freaking called a slant. It was a five, six, seven yard slant. It wasn't a touchdown. I don't care. I want you to challenge every play like it's your last play. And if you're not going to do that, get it to the back of the bench. Are you ready to get in there and fight? I said, yeah, Coach, I'm ready to get in there and fight. Well, get in there and give me a fight. The thing about Coach Andrews, he understood you would not be flawless every snap. But he wanted you to attack every rep with that mindset. Now, and then when I got older, you know, if someone called a slant on me, I wasn't coming out. But see, I was young in the game, just trying to groom me mentally, like the mental toughness. And I'm like, coach, is only a slant. I don't care. I want you to challenge every play. The only, you only lose a play because you let them. If you don't let them, you will win. It's a mindset. And that's one thing he emphasized and he just drilled to us. You only get beat because you let them beat you. You did it. Nobody else did it. There's nothing about we didn't get pressure. There's nothing about uh, someone um, had another misassignment. You let it happen. Don't let it happen. And the only reason you won't let it happen is until you start understanding mentally, they only will beat me if I let them beat me. And that's in that's incredible foreshadowing for something I'm going to ask you about later in this interview. Just keep yeah. that in mind. Um, who? What program do you hate more? The Ga Florida Gators. or Miami? The Gators. 
Gators? Yeah. I didn't even take a trip to Florida coming out of high school. I can't stand nothing Gator. I don't like Miami. I definitely hate Miami fans. They're so annoying. Every year they're back. We're back. The U is back. The U is back. Every year they're back, right? Haven't made it to the playoffs. Came close to made it to play. Haven't won a conference title in how long, but they're back. <laughs> but you respect Miami. I know I'm a South Florida kid, so I almost went to Miami. Gainesville? Nah, I, I don't like nothing Gainesville related. Nothing at all. I don't even want to drive through Gainesville. So you're not on the Trask for Heisman bandwagon? No. I no? respect Kyle Trask. He's a baller. And I love Kyle Pitts. I love Kyle Pitts. They, they play some good football in Gainesville right now, no question. But do I? No. I, no. I try not to bet with Florida. And I love gambling right now. Being a mm-hmm. gang. I don't even want to bet with Florida. Yeah, I feel that. Um, so in college, you moved around a lot. You, you played some safety as well as corner, didn't you? Uh, here or there, but mostly I played corner. Um, and, you know, I was basically always on the left side. Um, but people used to think I played safety a lot because I was involved in so much, uh, so many tackles. And that's a part of Mickey Andrews also. If you weren't going to get in a fight, you couldn't play. If you didn't want to tackle, you're not playing. So, uh, you know, we used to do a lot of different things at Florida State, but mostly I was always a corner. Okay. Because I was wondering if you had a role. I mean, I wasn't old enough to really watch you play in college a lot. I tried to look up some film. I was wondering if you had a role similar to, like, how Jalen Ramsey was used, you know, because they kind of moved him. Was that a similar comparison? around a lot. And then also, too, the defenses that he played in were a little more, you know, pizzazz, to say the least, because we were more generic because we played against more generic style offenses. You know, when they played, everything was a little spread out a little bit. Were you involved in any of the wide left or right games? Yes, unfortunately. I was involved in uh, two, I think. Okay. I, I wish I could forget, but I can't. Uh, that's well, we don't have to go down that road. I just wanted to, I, I can't remember, you know, if that was before you. And then another defensive back was Chris Hope there when you were there, or was he just before you? Yeah, me and C Hope played together. I mean, if you want to talk about other guys that made it to the National Football League, you got you missing some guys, uh, that were there when I was younger. If you want to add to the list, yeah, defensive backs, yeah, Chris Hope. I played with Chris Hope, I played with, with Tay Cody, I played with Derek Gibson, was a first rounder. Uh, was Stanford Samuels had a short stint with the Colts, so you probably miss another four guys if you talk about Jeez, some of oh them. Yeah. I, I didn't go far back enough, I guess. Yeah. We're gonna get right back to my conversation with Bryant McFadden, but first, a word from our sponsors. You arrive in Pittsburgh, your second round pick. Uh, you go to a team that's fit that was 15 and one and went to the AFC Championship the year prior. Uh, you know, out of all the places to land, it had to feel pretty good going into the Steel City, right? You know, and in all honesty, when I first got drafted to Pittsburgh, see, Hope were, were telling me they were liking, they they, they had a, a, a they were rocking with me to say the least, because he used to always ask me, I mean, inform me when they would ask ask him about me. Coach Perry was there at the time, um, uh, some of the other defensive coordinator, uh, coaches and some of the scouts. So I knew Pittsburgh was high on me. And what, what watching that draft, I remember it like it was yesterday because Hope was saying that they really liked me. And when I kept seeing freaking Heath Miller fall, I said, and I played against Heath in mm-hmm. the NBC. My show. Because remember, Heath didn't do anything combine-related because I think he had like a, a – groin injury or something that prevented him from working out. But Heath was a beast. So 
Pittsburgh needed a tight end. And, and it was kind of documented that he needed a tight end or maybe secondary help. But when Heath fell, and Heath was a for sure first-round talent, I was like, oh, shoot. So when I when coming back in the second round, when they drafted me, I was I had mixed mixed emotions, and here's why. Number one, I thought I might have might have gone late in the first round. Um, number two, I thought I was going to Atlanta because the Friday before the draft, I had a phone meeting with uh, the GM and the owner, I think it was, and they told me that if I would be available, they would they would select me. So I didn't go to Atlanta. And number three, I was going to a place that all I can think about was December weather when it's cold and frigid. So I was mad about my draft position. I was mad about the actual team that I thought was going to draft me, didn't draft me. And then I was mad about the location of where I was going. And I remember like yesterday, I had a little gathering at my house. My high school coach was there, Keith Franklin. He came up to me. He's like, man, what's up? I said, man, this BS, man. I'm freaking got drafted. Late in the second round, I thought I'd be a higher pick, and I'm pretty going to Pittsburgh. All I could think about was Batman and Gotham City because it's always gloomy and <laughs> and sun never comes out, and it's gonna be freaking cold. You know, I was only used to maybe at worst case scenario 38 degree weather in Tallahassee, right? Mm-hmm. So he's like, "Man, forget all that, man. You're going to an established organization that will always contend to be in the playoffs." I heard that, but at that time, I'm still in my feelings. So I'm like, man, that don't make no sense to me. What is, I don't care nothing about that, right? So, but then when I get to Pittsburgh, I get all around the guys, I see the culture, I instantly forget about my thoughts during draft night. And if guys, like, look at my rookie year when I started playing, when it was cold outside, I ain't have no sleeves on. Like, I was part of, I bought into the Pittsburgh way, you know what I mean? Because that's who we are. You know what I mean? When you talk about the bird, yeah, we welcome Steeler weather. That's what we used to call it. When it's 20 degrees, 30 degrees, 15 degrees, it's Steeler weather. This is what this is where you put on your hard hat and you go, you go chopping some wood. You, you know, you're chopping wood. So I bought into it and had had a lot of success. Like you said, we played in three Super Bowls, one, two, had a lot of success. Only missed the playoffs once when I was there, which was that 06 year when we missed it by one game. We finished eight and eight. I never was a part of a losing record. I never was a part of a defense that would probably finish outside the top 10. Uh, played in three AFC championship games. So we had a lot of success. And I, and, and I did a, 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 I was on a local radio station in Pittsburgh a few days ago. I said, yeah, one thing about Steelers fans, they're spoiled. But they have a reason to be spoiled. If, you, if, if, you, if you're in the, the, your 30s, 40s, 50s, or even 20s, all you know is winning. If you are affiliated with the Steelers, so I, I wouldn't change anything for the world. The only thing I would change about my time in Pittsburgh was that freaking Super Bowl we lost to Green Bay. And we'll get into that. We'll we'll get into all of that. Um, I want to make a point. I'm 25, and the last Steelers losing season that I've been around to see was when I was in third grade, and that was the year that before they drafted Ben. And like. You know, going to college in Ohio and explaining that to my friends who are Browns fans, they just can't comprehend that. Um, and by the way, that was a hell of a Steelers pep talk there. I'd apologize to all of our listeners. You probably just ran through a wall after hearing that. But we'll move on now um, to, a, I think, your biggest moment of your rookie season and arguably one of the more important moments of your Steeler career is in the AFC divisional round. You guys are playing the Colts in, in a game that, not many people predicted you guys to win. Um, it's all but over, right? It's it's 21 to 18. Joey Porter, I think, gets the sack on Manning. Jerome takes the ball at the one and fumbles it. 
And now the Colts take over at midfield. They're driving and they're in field goal range already. And I think they have two more plays. It's like second down and in back to back spots, Peyton Manning goes right after you with Reggie Wayne, who if, if he isn't in the hall of fame already, he will be. I think, I think he will get it. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he's a Miami guy, you know, a U versus Florida State and you're the rookie. And it kind of takes you back to that moment that you talked about when your coach was yelling, go after number eight, go after number eight and attack every play. And you won't lose if you don't let yourself lose. Can you take me through those back to back instances where you have one of the best quarterbacks of all time, one of the best receivers of all time? You're a rookie on the road in the playoffs game on the line. And you make it. You make a stop back-to-back plays. Yo, so the the sudden change in that ball game was unbelievable. Because when I say sudden change, is meaning for us defensively, when something happens offensively that you didn't expect to happen. Usually it's a turnover. So we had the ball on the goal line. We're celebrating, talking trash to the fans. Because remember, early in that year, we went to Indy on Monday night. They beat us bad. BC told us, Bill Carr told us, like, listen, whatever. We're gonna come back through this to the same very locker room in January. That's what he said. So going back to that play right when Jerome fumbled, we, we're thinking we're about to score. Or worst-case scenario, we don't score, cl- clock basically run out almost. We heard the crowd go crazy. Now sudden change. Oh, it's a fumble. What? We went from it's a fumble to, oh, no, will he, will he, will he get tackled? Anybody going to tackle? Ben, Ben, get him, Ben, Ben, got him. Now they said, defense, you're on the field. We're like, oh, shoot, now we got to go on the football field. So I already knew because of what happened how intense the game was in the time they were going to come after me. And the reason why I knew that is because I knew Dick LeBeau was going, going to try to send some pressure, right? And when we're sending pressure, and people always consider us to be a fire zone defense, which we were, but fire zone, fire zone defenses in the secondary basically is man-to-man concepts, unless you get some switch releases, you know, guys moving and changing simultaneously, and you got to switch off. But – for us corners, it's basically man-to-man. And when he came out and called Indy Fire Zone, which was a fire a coverage that he implemented for that week, and we had a lot of success. That's what that when you if you go back and look at the game, the majority of the sacks came from that defense called Indy Fire Zone. And I was basically man-to-man with, with Reggie. And because of the sudden change effect, we weren't disguised. So people were just lining up in whatever they were supposed to line up. And Peyton knew I was one-on-one with Reggie Wayne with no help, basically, right? And I just like, ah oh, shit. I remember the first play, it wasn't Indy. They caught a dig on me, uh, made the tackle. I'm like, oh, man, come on, just stand up, man. Just stand up. Just stand up and get in the fight. And it's funny, I talked to you about that Andrew story earlier in the show. That That's what was going through my mind. Get in here and challenge and get in a fight. Challenge Reggie Wayne and get in a fight. Don't let him beat you. Don't let him beat you. And we call Indy Fire Zone. And I'm like, man, Mac, just practice your technique. Stay low. Good eyes, good hips, play ball, fight. And it's crazy because people tell you all the time, in certain moments of your life, the sound goes mute. Nobody else exists except you and whoever you're going against. And at that time, when we caught Indy and I felt like Reggie was going to run a go ball, and I was able to zone turn, which is usually something you don't do in a man concept. Usually you a man concept, you a man turn to the wide receiver. But in in this case, because I was a little... I was maybe a step or two inside of Reggie because I was playing with inside leverage. I wanted to always have my eyes on the ball when I open because one thing about Reggie, the way he attacks the football, 
to not to be a bigger wide receiver. He was a great 50-50 catcher. So if I didn't have my eyes on the football the entire time when I was opening up to run with him on the go ball, he might have had opportunity to attack the ball before I could. So when I zone turn, I zone turn, but I had my peripheral vision on him and I went right back to Peyton. I was able to locate the ball instantly. So I ended up doing a Reggie on Reggie because when I locate the football, I was able to attack it before allowing him to attack it on me. And when I did, if you look at the play, he still tried to go get it because that's who he is as a wide receiver. Like I said, to be an undersized wide receiver, he's probably one of the best 50-50 catchers in his time. And he still tried to go get it. And I swat. And while we're coming down, he is still trying to attack the football. And I just kept remembering Coach Andrews in my head. Get in there and get in a fight. So I swat again while we're coming down. And that last final swat, if you look at the play in slow motion, really disrupted him from grabbing the ball at all. So if I don't, if I, if I, the first swat I hit the ball and hit his hands, if I got relaxed with that and thinking, oh, he ain't catching the football, he probably would have still caught the ball. But as I'm coming down, I just kept hearing, fight, fight, fight. And the whistle did not blow. I knew the ball, the game was still in play. So I just swatted again, and that kind of disrupted that situation. So the next play, we come back. It's a whole nother fire zone. I'm in man-to-man again. I said, freaking Coach LeBeau, you're just going to put me out here on this island. I'm the only rookie on the football field, so you already know where they're going. Same thing. It wasn't indie, but it was another fire zone. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to read my keys. So what happened was Reggie was supposed to run a stop. Reggie ran a stop and go. Peyton tried to throw the stop. And, man, listen. Yo, if I could have intercepted that pass, I probably would have been a for real legend in Pittsburgh forever. I know people are so happy about the play that I made the first one. But if I could have intercepted that ball, oh, my goodness. I would have been a made man forever, right? But then what happened was kind of the same concept. So I was getting my three-step read on Peyton. I had my peripheral on Reggie. And when I saw Reggie coming off, I was kind of slow playing it because he just took me deep. So I didn't want to allow him to catch the ball, square me up, and maybe make a difficult tackle on myself. So I was still looking at Peyton. When I saw Peyton's shoulders turning, I'm like, oh, balls get ready to come. So Reggie gave me that little stop. So when Reggie gave me that stop, I still had Peyton in my peripheral, and I just saw Peyton doing this. And I didn't want to jump the gun because if he hit me with a pump and then go, it's a touchdown. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'd rather be a little late than too early, and that early can really hurt all of us. So I was right on time with it. And when he let it go, I just, because I wasn't as early, I couldn't get my hands underneath the ball to have a a legit opportunity of catching the ball. But then I broke it up and Van Jack came out, missed the field goal, and, you know, we go on to the next round and end up winning a championship. Was there any thought when Vanderjack walked on the field that he was actually going to miss? I mean, I, I just assumed that you guys were probably just preparing for overtime, right? You know what? We felt pretty good about because it wasn't an easy field goal, and he was a bit uh, inconsistent at times. Okay. One, one thing we felt that is because of the momentum that changed in favor of them, and we kind of wiped up, took the momentum back. We were going to win that ball game. We felt like we were going to win that ball game because the sudden change that happened with them having the momentum – and not scoring or getting close to closer into field goal range was a plus for us. So when that when they came out on the football field, we were like, "Yo, we 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 even if we go into overtime, we just stole all the momentum back from them. We took their best shot and didn't didn't flinch at all. So we felt pretty good." So a couple weeks later, like you said, you win Super Bowl forty. Uh, you you know, on the field during most of the game, uh, made a couple tackles. What's your best story from either Super Bowl week before the game, uh, from the game itself, or from the chaos that ensued after you guys won? Probably the week of Super Bowl, 
uh, press, uh, you know, had a lot of press opportunities. And I remember Joey Porter uh, just trying to find something to get us going. And he just picked out, I think, Jeremy Stevens and just was trying to punk him all week in the media. Uh, he, you know, one thing about Joey, he looked for an altercation. He looked for an extra reason to be hyped up and fired up. And Jeremy Stevens was the guy. And I remember Jeremy Stevens had dropped a few passes in the ball game. And, man, the guys were getting on at him. I mean, they were cussing him out, talking crazy to him. Uh, so that was kind of cool because I was always a fan of Steeler defense even before I became a Steeler, how they played and how aggressive they were and nasty and disrespectful. You know, Steeler defense is basically a splitting image of our fans. We disrespectful. You know what I mean? If you don't have one our color, we don't like at all. And even if we're wrong, we're right. You know what I mean? So if you don't rock with us, we don't rock with you. And it's, that's how we feel in real life. You know what I mean? So I think defenses should always feel that way. And I think if you if you want to be successful, you can't be nice. You, you can't be nice. Coach Andrews used to tell us in Pist- uh in Florida State, he said, You can't you can't uh what'd he say? He's, oh he said you can't play tough and live soft. He said, No, that ain't gonna work. He said, if you if you wanna play like you tough on the field, football field, but you live in soft. Is that eventually going to show itself on the football field? He said, "I need people who live hard and play hard." And it fair makes, enough. It makes sense, you know. When you yeah. play the game of football, you can be a nice guy when you need to be, but you got to be able to turn that thing on when you got to. And you know, you shouldn't have to wait for someone to slap you in the face. We're going to take another quick break. When we get back, our third and final part of Memory Lane featuring Bryant McFadden. A few years after you win your first Super Bowl, your rookie year, um, there's a big, big moment in Steelers history, the transition between Cower to Tomlin. Uh, what was that transition like for you? I've talked to other former Steelers. They said, you know, early on, Coach Tomlin, he he loved to have those physical practices. Um, how did you receive – what was your – you know, how did you receive that? I was uh, – because we all really thought that BC would uh, stick around. We were one year removed from winning a championship. We missed the playoffs by one year the following year. We thought we had the nucleus to continue to make a deep run. And he left, and we're like, what's next? We thought we would keep it in-house with Wins and Hunt, Russ Grimm, who were trying to get the job. Um, it didn't happen. Then we go get Tomlin. The crazy part of Tomlin, uh, the, the unique thing about Tomlin was he was my secondary coach in the senior bowl. We had Tamin based that. So I knew a little bit about him. He knew a little bit about me. And he comes along, and, yeah, that first training camp was ugly. I think we did, like, 20 straight days or two days. But eventually he told us he was trying to figure out the ball club and, and, and see who can handle it and who, can, who couldn't. And he well, kind of wore us out, honestly. You know what I mean? Because by the time we got midway through the season and that playoff run against Jacksonville, man, we were beat up. We were beat up. But, you know, after that, he kind of understood who he, what he had as a roster. And uh, he kind of handled us differently. And then eventually we started to see the fruits of, the labor, of, his, uh, uh, of that decision, you know, pay, uh, pay out for us. Like you said, it did pay out in his second year. You guys go and win Super Bowl 43. Um, there are a couple moments I want to talk to you about in this game. Uh, the the main one being James Harrison's interception. You weren't on the field for that, were you? That goal line, no, nah, I wasn't. 
Okay, because I was watching the. I was wondering if you were on the opposite end. Mm-hmm. It, it it looked like you, you weren't, but um, the thing I wanted to talk to you about is, and it's kind of known how that was kind of drawn up in the sense where wasn't there an instance earlier that week in practice where you guys were picking off passes and everyone was just kind of jogging after the interception and didn't Coach Tomlin put an emphasis on how he wanted a pick six and he like tied it back to his days with the Buccaneers. Am I, am I wrong with this or was that, was there an emphasis placed on trying to return an interception for a touchdown in that game? Well, anytime we got our hands on a football as a defender, we wanted to try to get positive yards to put our offense in good field position or try to score. So we did rep that the week of Mike Tomlin said, anytime we caught a pass or interception in practice, uh, score, don't, don't matter where you at on the football field score. Uh, and in that play with James, James wasn't supposed to be there. He was actually supposed to blitz. But because they kind of ran a, a, a pick concept uh, with Ike and Deshae, if James wasn't there, they probably would have scored. Mm-hmm. But James just being a great player and just kind of improvising on the fly instead of blitzing, because Kurt knew we were in the all-out blitz, zero blitz. That was the name, something zero blitz. He knew he had a position, a wide-open opportunity to hit his pass catcher. But James act like he was about to blitz and fell right back. The ball hit him dead in the chest. So not just about catching the interception. The thing about that play is scoring. So it's basically a 14-point swing. Mm -hmm. We took seven off the football, off the scoreboard from them, and put seven on the board for us. You know what I mean? In worst-case scenario, they get three points. So it could have been, you know, worst-case scenario, 10 points for them. Take three points away from them, put seven on the board for us. Because the likelihood of you scoring – from where you were on the football field was not likely, but we scored. And that that play probably is just as big as the Santonio Holmes play. I think if you look at how the game panned out throughout the course of that ball game, that James Harrison play was big because we took points away from them and we put points on the scoreboard for us. One play is bigger than the other, but they're right there neck and neck. I think it also it changes the entire mood in the locker room for both teams as well, where if, if Arizona scores right before the half, they're going into the locker room with a lead, and you know we just drove down the field against the best defense. You know it's, it's, it's in their control, whereas what actually happened, you not only stop them, but you get points, you build upon your lead, and you're just saying, you know, we're really in the driver's seat. I think that made it 20 to seven. So yep. you have a multi-score lead against the team in the Super Bowl, you're feeling a lot better. And I agree. I think that that, I mean, the Holmes play is more significant, I think, because of how it occurred and when it occurred. And I mean, it was a brilliant catch. But as far as game changers, I mean, that that flipped the game on its head. I wanted to ask you about Santonio's catch. Um, What was your point of view of that? Were you uh, ready to get out there or did you see it? Where were you? Take me through it. Standing on the sideline, uh, so that drive, I felt real good about the drive, especially when we started, you know, getting some positive yards. And all we needed was a field goal to tie. But on the sideline, we were all like, man, screw this, man. We're probably going to score a touchdown because we had the defense on the heels. And Tone got in that rhythm. And, man, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, they ran the same play on the opposite side of the field. Ben overthrew it, came back and reversed it to the opposite side. That might have been one of the most critical passes I've seen because if you go back and look at that highlight, there were three guys that had opportunity to tip the ball or get in the passing lane of the ball. 
Prince Antonio still to be dialed in and that ball to go over three defenders and catch it and then toe tap go down as one of the best plays ever not just in Super Bowl history but ever but clearly when you talk about Super Bowl history it's big and I always thought when you look at the Steeler tradition in history that uh that Lynn Swan catch I can't remember what Super Bowl it was against Super Bowl 10 Super Bowl 10 yeah mm -hmm. against the Cowboys in Miami was probably one of the more iconic catches but that Santonio Holmes catch was was up there I mean I would take Santonio's catch over Lynn Swan great both catches are great but you're talking you want to have barbershop talking and debate which catch was better yeah I love Lynn Swan I love that Steeler Dean but I think Ben and Tone catch is greater yeah, and to build upon that, uh, Lynn Swan had another catch on the sideline in that game. What I th and I think that one was more impressive than mm -hmm. the one that always gets Everybody, replayed. Yeah. He like twists his body. I think that one was a lot more difficult, but that's just me. So you, you win another Super Bowl, and you go to the team that you just beat in the Super Bowl. You get a nice contract. Uh, you go to play in Arizona for a year, and then you come back to Pittsburgh. Were you happy to be back after that one year away? I was happy. I felt like I should never left. Honestly, I felt like, you know, I didn't want to leave and things didn't work out. And then I come back and I'm like, yo, you know, if any worse, you got to look at the trend. Uh, I felt like I was the rabbit foot because I leave. You don't go to the playoffs. You bring me back. We go to the playoffs. And before you know, we're, back in, we're right back in the Super Bowl. So I felt like you should just keep me on the team just because. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, but yeah, um, and, and realistically speaking, I felt like I shouldn't have left. I didn't want to leave. Um then I come back, it's like, yo, I just you know, wasted a year basically just leaving to come right back. Um, but uh, everything happens for a reason. I got a chance to see how other organizations are, are, uh, are run, um, fan base and things like that. So I got a chance to experience something outside of Pittsburgh, which at that time was all I, all I knew. You come back, you, you make it to the Super Bowl one more time. You don't come out on top. Obviously, it's a different experience, but just take me through – um, you know, what you're feeling after that first loss. Because, I mean, you'd gotten to a point where, you know, the feeling in Pittsburgh, too, was this is a dynasty. This team can't lose a Super Bowl. What? How in the world is that going to happen? And that was a game that you guys had a lot of opportunities to win, and it just doesn't happen. I mean, you fall to one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, and uh, just take me through maybe your feelings in the locker room after that loss. It was It was depressing. Um, I didn't want to watch anything football related. I never actually watched that full game, even today. I just didn't feel good because, like you said, anytime our group went to a championship game, we won. We never experienced the losing side. So for us to experience the losing side, the third go round, uh, was it's hard. It still it still sucks right now. I could have had three ranks. People always say, "Well, you got one, you got two. Yeah, but when you get to that level of playing in three, you want three. Mm -hmm. especially if you know the taste of winning. You know what I mean? Maybe one thing, we got to the first one and we lost. You don't know exactly how that feels to win. You know what I mean? Your fan base don't know how it feels to win. But you win the first two and you get to the third and you lose. And then the way we lost, like we started slow, but we bounced right back in the ball game. You know what I mean? It was a player here or there that was the deciding factor. And we made it competitive. So we were like, oh, we here. We back in it. And it used to come out on the short end of the stick or something that uh, I tell people all the time. If you told me I can go to the Super Bowl game as a player, but I would lose, I wouldn't want to go. 
That's and I think that the most shocking part of that loss for me, from when I remember watching it, was it seemed like everything was going to the pattern that it had all year, where you fell behind early, and then the offense just erupts. Thing, you know, things are happening because I mean, you fell behind early to Baltimore, then you came back and won that game, and then it, it just came down to it. And then even with you know, when you're down by eight at the end, it's like, okay, well, there, of course, you know, AB, who's a rookie at the time, he made two catches where I'm like, he'll probably make a catch here at the end. And, you know, they'll tie it with a two point conversion. Like everything was falling into place and then it didn't. So, yeah, I just remember that being, you know, that was tough. And it also just kind of felt like, I don't know if it felt like this for you. Uh, and I guess that's my next question is, did it feel like that was the end for the group that you were a part of there? Because guys were getting older. Some guys, weren't going to be able to stick around through free agency. Um, did it feel like that for you? Did it feel like that for anyone else? No, we felt like we still had a shot. Uh, you know, we felt like all, all you wanted to do was get into the get into the tournament, which is the playoffs. And it, that was the, that was the bigger concern. Cause when you get into the tournament, now you can control your destiny. You know what I mean? So we didn't feel like, yeah, we were going to slump or go the opposite direction. We felt like, yo, we still had a shot to get back in the tournament. And, um, that following year we did, but yeah. we ended up, you know, losing in the playoffs. What was was that a tougher loss, the the Tebow loss? Or was the Super Bowl more devastating? Super Bowl. Super, Super Bowl. Bowl. Yeah. Okay. Because my boss tells me all the time he's never seen a locker room more demoralized than after the Tebow loss. And you know, I've I've asked some people. Maybe he wasn't in that locker room in, in Dallas. Yeah. All right. So wrapping things up, uh, you are now doing what I do. Uh, you're, you're, you're working in the media. What got you into wanting to do this, working in the media? Was it former teammates encouraging you who also have media careers, or was this something that you've always had an interest in? I always love talking sports, especially uh, specifically football, and that's something that we did a lot in our locker room when we on our downtime, talking sports, talking football, talking to, you know the history of the game, things like that. So I always wanted to be – involved in sports to some degree and I wanted to be around the game to some degree. So when I knew my playing days were over, I wanted to have a connection with the game. And I felt like if I got the opportunity to talk sports, you know, run with it. You know what I mean? Just run with it. Approach that part of my life like I did the gridiron and just devote a lot of time and attention to it. So what's your career goal now? Are you trying to be like a play-by-play guy or a, a broadcaster in the booth? Would you like to have your own show on a big network, be like a Shannon Sharp or somebody? Or are you trying to be like an Ahmad Rashad, maybe like a sideline reporter and an insider? You know what? I think the best way for me to be myself and to supply the information that people would like to hear and see would be something similar to show style, like, you know, uh, Shannon Sharp or something like that. Not saying I wouldn't consider doing play-by-play, being able to break the game down, simplify it, and educate. I think that's hot. That's a dope thing to do. But just being able to make people feel how I feel and make people understand the game from a different perspective when they get done listening to me. My job, I felt like anytime I talk the game of football or talk about players, just imagine the people that are listening to me or watching me are like my grandparents, like my grandma. Mm-hmm. She knows nothing about football. So when she's done listening and watching me, she can walk away knowing something about the game. I did my job. Also, yeah. too, entertaining. You know what I mean? Give people something to laugh or feel good about while they're learning. Think about this. When you were in school, some of the best experiences you had in school in the classroom when you were with an entertaining teacher. Yeah. 
most of us didn't like a born teacher because yep. instantly when we get into the class, when we know that teacher is born, we tap out. Yep. Might be great at explaining and getting you to learn and understand things, but because they had a different style in doing it that we didn't consider to be entertaining, we might not give them our all in listening and receiving that information. It's the same when you watch TV or you watch somebody online. If you feel like this person is born, but they got a lot to say, you might, they might, you might not give them the same opportunity. So that's how I approach what I do now. Try to be entertaining, but yet still very, very informative. Bryant, you're busy, man. I know you got to get going. Uh, where can we find your work uh, and where can we find you on social media? Social media, BMAC underscore Sports Talk. Same name, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find me on CBS Sports HQ uh, weekly, uh, talking football. I have my own podcast, All Things Covered Podcast with Patrick Peterson. Please uh, subscribe and give us a listen. I already do both of those, and I encourage everyone else to do it as well. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate your time.